Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. That's where I'm going to be uh, speaking from this morning. And uh, man, is it rich. I've, it's just been so good to uh, look over. And what I'd like to zone in on today is the idea of covenant. When I say that word, I wonder what you think about. When I say the word covenant, what do you think about? Well, maybe some of you have never thought of, thought of it before. Maybe you thought land. Personally, we bought a block of land and entered into a covenant on that land. There was a covenant around that land. Uh, and it basically meant that we needed to build a nice enough house, not have a gravel driveway, and ensure that whatever happened, we didn't store a trailer or a caravan in the front yard to try and keep up this sort of level within the estate. Um, maybe you thought, when I said the word covenant, maybe you thought marriage. Well, uh, we're actually going to read together from Hebrews chapter six, verse eight to th- uh, s- sorry, Hebrews chapter eight, verse six to thirteen. If you've got a Bible, you should open up. I'll be looking there, and actually take some time to understand covenants, and in particular the old covenant and this new covenant that we've been hearing about so much throughout this uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, so let's read now Hebrews chapter eight, verses six to thirteen. But as it is. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And this next little section from verse 8 to verse 13 is actually a quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 44. And it's significant because this was written uh, about 600 years before Christ came. So this book of Jeremiah was God speaking to this prophet called Jeremiah about this new covenant that would open up. And, uh, and basically he was talking about Jesus. He was pointing towards Jesus. Jesus hadn't come to live on the earth yet. That, wasn't, uh, that hadn't happened yet. He wasn't born. This is 600 years before it happened. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Anyone triggering yet which covenant that was? Covenant with Moses, right? So he took millions, literally millions of people out of slavery in Egypt. That had happened for 400 years. We'll get into that. Uh, For this is the covenant that I will make with them. Uh, Sorry, make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds... And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know of me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, I wonder what you think about when I, th- when I say covenant. I'll ask again. Is it the same as a contract? Well, this next quote puts it well when it talks about a covenant. I'm pretty sure when we actually look at this idea of covenant, we're actually going against the flow of culture. Because what I think our culture thinks and what has probably been ingrained in us is that covenant and contract seem to be something similar when, in fact, they're not that similar at all. The difference between... Uh, Covenant and contract. Contracts and covenants differ in a few areas. In terms of initiation, contracts are made by the exchange of promises, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. In applications, contracts are limited by the terms of the exchange of property. This is yours, that's mine. While covenants involve an exchange of life. I am yours, you are mine. Which covers a virtually unlimited range of human relations and duties. In terms of motivation, contracts are based on profit and self-interest, while covenants call for self-giving loyalty and sacrificial love. Contracts are temporary, while covenant bonds are permanent, even intergenerational. Such distinctions do not imply that covenants are necessarily opposed to contracts, since covenants call for both promise-making and oath-swearing. A contract is an agreement in human affairs that may be reinforced by swearing a covenant in order to add the more binding dimension of the divine. wonder if you see ways in which we've become contract-minded people only. There is a dangerous infatuation with the new in our culture, 
It's this infatuation with the consumer market-driven culture that we, have li- that, that we live in, continually trying to make decisions based on profit and self-interest. It causes in us insatiable desire for something better, something newer, and something that will stir new excitement in us. The interesting thing is that this desire is rarely satisfied completely, which means it has to be fed over and over and over again. Also think that this drive is also carried out into some of the most important pillars of society. Marriage, for example, has been broken many times because someone gets old and it's far more exciting having someone new. The whole idea of entering into the covenant of marriage is declining with Australian statistics. I looked up uh, the, the ABS suggesting that more and more people are choosing to live together before or instead of marriage or after a separation. Now, if I'm just going to take a quick side here. I also looked at the statistics, and uh, it may be completely off the mark, but it showed that more females were entering into de facto relationships than males between the age of 18 and 25. Could it be that females are fearful that entering into a marriage may leave them, may, may leave them completely devastated when the husband up and leaves? And could it mean that men are less likely to offer commitment to a woman in preparation for marriage so they can settle for a de facto relationship where they can opt in and out whenever they choose? Maybe this is a telling thing about our culture and our society about men and women. What results are chaotic relationships, desperate for commitment and security, broken families and low levels of commitment and children who are lost in it all. And perhaps there's people sitting here who are the, uh, the after effects of that, where covenant has been broken and there's just a real distorted view of covenant in, it, in everywhere. This is also evidence, I think, with the idea of prenuptial agreements being forged in marriages. An, this is an agreement for a couple that if they part ways, they have a pre-agreed contract that whatever happens, if you break your part of the contract, then I get some of your stuff or some of your money or whatever is agreed, agreed upon in that uh, contract. <clears throat> Here's what a, uh, the, a quote from the Prenuptial Agreements Australia webpage. Nobody plans to fail, but a lot of people fail to plan. Since we do not get married with a view to divorce, most Australians do not consider the benefits of a prenuptial agreement. Australian couples can plan their future rights and responsibilities through a binding financial agreement. A financial agreement is a contract entered into between both parties either prior or after the wedding date that addresses a range of issues outlined in the family law. What are you thinking? Covenant or contract? Contract, isn't it? Marriage is a contract that two people get into. It's a partnership, 50-50. You get your half, you get your half, and we'll be sweet. Let's hope that we make it through to the end. That's not covenant thinking, is it? That's not covenant thinking at all. You have to ask the question, why? Why is it that a couple would prefer to live with each other rather than entering into a binding covenantal commitment of marriage? Think of our insecurities for two people just to be living together, and boom, it could be over in a night. It could be over in a second. Any any person could walk walk out in a minute. I think it has to do with a distorted view of covenant commitment essential to marriage and designed by God as part of his created order. Additionally, and here's the last little uh, cultural sort of implication, I think that the Western church, and you've probably heard this a bit here before, has become become somewhat savvy in creating something exciting and marketing a new product so that people can continue to feed the whatever profits me or appeals to my self-interest attitude. What becomes of this is that people get bored. The new thing becomes an old thing and people move on to the next new thing. Sadly, it means that the current population, I think, is a bunch of church hoppers. There's something new. Yeah, I might go and check that out for a little while. Oh, no, that's become old or the pastor, I'm getting sick of his talking, getting a bit bored. I'll move on to the next thing. Oh, there's a new church, the project's starting. Let's go and check it out. Sweet eyes, it might be something new, it might be something exciting. Is that not the, the whole contractual thinking? Let's feed whatever profits me and whatever involves my self-interest. This is not covenant. This wasn't God's intention uh, for the church. So here's where we come to Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews wants us to step back and take a bigger look at the bigger picture throughout all of the Bible. And this is where Hebrews chapter 8 starts talking about the whole old covenant, new covenant idea. So what I'd like to do is, uh, is look into what a covenant is and how God has established covenants throughout uh, history. And it does get a little technical, I have to admit, but hopefully in the technicality, you don't get bored, but your eyes are open to 
the grandness of God and the kindness of God and the faithfulness of God in him entering into a relationship with people who ultimately sinned against him, hated him and didn't actually want him. And he continued to do it over and over and over again. Let's take a good look. Begins with God. When you understand covenant throughout history, it begins with God. He is by nature Trinitarian, which means that he's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Right? So you've got the three persons in the Trinity in a perfect covenant relationship. There's never going to be an opportunity or a chance for God the Father to say, oh, Jesus, you've done it again, I'm done. We're out, this, this relationship is over. Never, never, ever. It wouldn't agree with his very nature and character. His nature and character is that he is a covenant, covenantal God in relationship, in perfect relationship with one another. So they've always got each other's back. There's always trust. There's always love. And there's always commitment that is going to be unwavering. That's hopeful. That's a hopeful God. That's a hopeful God that we serve. And that pours out into perfect covenant community and they generously and and filled with grace remain covenantal with all of God's people despite the fact that history shows those people to be sinful enemies and rebels. The Bible is filled with covenants which vary on their terms of agreement. Job, for example, made a covenant with his eyes never to look lustfully upon a woman. One example of a covenant. Another covenant is uh, where the deep, deep brotherly love is spoken of as a covenant and so is marriage. Marriage is spoken of as this covenant that people enter into. It's a binding covenant that, that ought to be taken seriously. Uh, some of the benefits of covenants can include being protected from an enemy, peace, financial blessing and obtaining a homeland. Then the Bible includes God's covenant with his people. By this, it means our relationship with God is made by his provisions and on his terms. I wonder if you're sitting there thinking or feeling, but it's sort of unfair because we live in a culture that's very litigious. And it means that if anything goes wrong at this school, like my son or daughter stubs their toe on the end of the long jump pit, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get whatever I can out of you. you. You're not meeting up with my deal, my end of the bargain here. And so you have this litigious culture that's uh, suing and, and constantly uh, trying to get their end of the bargain, trying to get their money uh, for the way that somebody else has broken the covenant. Well, God comes and says, you don't have a bargaining chip. I come to you and I'm going to have a relationship with you. you. You come, you enter in. I'll keep going. Mark Driscoll in his book on doctrine explains it this way. Through covenant with God, we enjoy a relationship with him that is akin to marriage and includes protection from Satan, our enemy, peace with God, though we declared war on him through sin, material provisions in this life and the life to come, and a coming perfect kingdom as our home where Jesus will forever rule over all, over all as our gracious covenant king. If you were to consider covenant as a definition, think about it, a definition for covenant. Here's what uh, I would put forward. A covenant is a solemn commitment, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties, sealed with an oath. So when God enters into a covenant with humanity, he institutes a life and death bond. Now another way you could put this is, uh, he institutes, uh, when you enter into a relationship with God, it's a life and death relationship based on God's terms. Anyone feel sort of uncomfortable with that? God initiates, God makes all the way, God uh, sets all the rules, sets all the guidelines, and you get to enter into that. That's a, that ought to be a hallelujah, absolutely. As a bond, a covenant is a relationship that commits people to one another, God to God's people, and people to God. There are then oaths, promises, and signs that go together with the bond or commitment. When you stop to consider how God has made covenants with people, it descriptively reveals his loving grace and mercy to people who are deserving of condemnation. This gets to the very root of the human condition. God's covenant comes and when he makes covenant with people, he makes covenant with people who are in inherently sinful and who have inherently gone against and opposed God based on that sin. But he shows his loving kindness over and over and over again. And this is what I hope 
See, it, it would be a scary thing if God was a, uh, a dictator who had his own evil self-interest in mind. This is how you're going to relate to me and that's it. You've got no other choice. Deal with it, you're done. All right? And God doesn't come with evil self-interest in mind. God comes as a loving God who invites people into covenant relationship. A covenant is not some mamby-pamby casual commitment made to someone and God is no exception. When he enters into covenant, he doesn't take it lightly. In fact, when a covenant is established, there's something called the cutting of the covenant. <clears throat> this, is, this usually involves the slaughter of an animal. And what this did was to symbolize the curse that the covenant make, maker brought down upon themselves if they ever violated the commitment they made. So you've got the shedding of blood. I remember uh, Diff got up one time and, uh, and he talked about this opportunity that he had to slaughter a goat that uh, they were out shooting uh, on a shooting trip and there was a point where they had to slit the neck of this goat and, uh, and it, was a, it just was a big deal. He found it very difficult to, uh, to slaughter this animal because there's something about it, taking a life and the blood that's shed is something significant. And so what God wanted to institute in that is that this is something significant. You enter into this and this is no just... This isn't something to be taken lightly. It's not a contract. This is a covenant between two people. And blood will be shed if the covenant maker decides to violate his promise or his end of the contract, yeah, his end of the bargain. When God enters into covenant with people, there's no moment of bargaining or negotiating the contract regarding the terms of the covenant. God's covenant was not something that could be earned by any merit of our own good. It is always a kind and generous provision from God to his people. It's God who gets to dictate his covenants with his people. God is the owner of the covenant in that he conceives, devises, determines, establishes, confirms and dispenses his covenants. And as I said before, uh, very often through scripture he says, I will establish my covenant with you. It's him who establishes it, it's him who keeps it and it's him who carries it through. If God, as I said before, if God were a dictator with evil, selfish ambition, and these, these covenants would sound terrifying, but this does not line up with God's character, as we'll see. He rightly upholds his sovereign, perfect sovereign rule as God of the universe. I appreciated the way that, uh, that Wayne this morning took time to consider Jesus as a friend. And unfortunately, most often, people hear Jesus as friend. Come and invite Jesus to be your friend. Come and invite Jesus to be your friend. Missing this sovereign lordship of Christ. And so it means that as a friendship, like when you enter into a friendship, there's probably opportunity for that friendship to be broken, right? And for uh, either party to leave whenever they like. No, not with God. God invites you into covenant relationship. He will never leave. He will never fail. He's not like a friend in that sense who, uh, who can walk out on the relationship or can hurt you in that sense. Uh, he, he is Lord. And so we come to him as Lord, not just as a friend. So I appreciate that this morning, Wayne. As you look in the Bible, uh, you see five major covenants that God makes. First one is with Noah and his family, which is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18 and, and onwards. The second one is with Abraham and his descendants. This is where God comes to these particular people and says, here's my promise to you. I'm going to make you my people or I'm going to make your descendants my people and I will remain faithful and I will remain in covenant with you throughout eternity and continue on. When God makes a covenant, he doesn't break it. Then it goes to Moses and the Israelites and this is where we'll focus some time today. After Moses comes the Davidic covenant, which is David and the kingdom of Israel, and then comes the new covenant of Jesus and his church. Each covenant has five common features, and you can see them up on the, uh, the screen there. The first is the covenant mediator. This is the person with whom God makes the covenant, and his covenant role, which is the people whom the mediator represents. Last week or two weeks ago, Pete talked about Jesus being the great mediator of our covenant. And how Jesus stands in, in place of us before God and puts in a good word for us. And that's literally the, uh, the deal with the mediator. The, the person who stands in between the two parties, if there's a disagreement or if there's uh, some, something that's happened within the relationship, the mediator steps in to deal with that. And we'll look at how Jesus did that uh, later on. 
The next is the blessings promised in the covenant. The third is the conditions or the curses of the covenant. Uh, <coughs> the next is the sign by which the covenant will be celebrated and remembered. And the fifth is the form that God's family takes as a result of the covenant. So let's look at Moses. These covenants were a way for God to address the problem of humanity and the entire creation uh, that the entire creation was in, which was sin. These covenants, as we see already today in Hebrews, were not able to solve the problem, but they did point to Jesus who could. So God establishes covenants right throughout history. From the beginning, uh, he starts to establish covenants with his people all the way through. Moses, Abraham, sorry, Abraham, first Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David. And what's it God saying? It's God saying, I will be faithful to my people and I will make a binding covenant agreement with you as my people to love you and to, uh, to, to keep you as my own. And there is, there's responsibility for the people. They're the conditions, right? Part of the conditions, as we'll see in a moment, was obedience to God's laws. So let's have a look. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. If you've got your Bible, you should uh, have a look at that. We're going to look at uh, the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, and it says this. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I'll just pause here. Go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And there was a promise in that covenant that the people of God would go into a land that's not their own. That was Egypt. And that Joseph would, uh, would help to give them right standing in this uh, country of Egypt. But then there'd be a pharaoh who would forget about Joseph and forget about all that had happened and the favour that uh, he had with God's people. And the people would become slaves. So at this point, and it literally says prior to uh, Exodus in Genesis, it actually talks about how the people would be enslaved for 400 years. This is before it all happened. This is, it blows you, my mind to see how God outworks his plan and outworks his uh, story throughout the whole of the Bible, preceding, use, often preceding uh, the actual event happening. And so here they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God knows this, God hears their cry, and he comes in and he makes another covenant. So this is where, where it's at with Abraham. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with, with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Later, it jumps over to Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. It says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. These people are in search of a new identity. So God takes them out of Egypt and God says, you're now my people. You're no longer slaves to this harsh taskmaster Pharaoh in Egypt. You're now my people. They always were his people, but now they're, they're his people and they're not under slavery anymore. They're not under this terrible yoke of slavery. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burden of the Egyptians. And then in Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you hear the tone? God's using a tone of redemption. God's using a tone of redemption. If you've ever thought about the redemptive story that goes right throughout the Bible, you see the up and down of the Israelites, God's chosen people. They worship God, they love God, and they honour God as God, but then they go and worship idols. They get caught up in, uh, in all the other countries' idols, and uh, they create their own idols, they become like their idols, but God remains covenantally faithful right throughout, even though there's this undulating Israelite history of faithfulness, faithful worship, to faithful worship of idols and completely turning their back on God. God uses a tone of redemption. And the point at which God brings in the Ten Commandments, 
right? This is where the people have left Egypt. There's millions of people wandering around in a desert. And God comes along to Mount Sinai. So God faithfully pursues his people. It's not like they have to come and show themselves, God, we're good, we're obeying you, we're doing what you said. Please like us. Please be good to us. No, God comes and he says, I love you. You're my people. (laughs) You don't get it perfect, but you're my people. And I'm going to be faithful to you. And he gives them these Ten Commandments. And often, well, I don't know how you've thought about the Ten Commandments and the laws, but you probably think, laws, man, this sucks. All laws, we've got to obey far out. It's just rules, 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 rules. But you don't understand, well, maybe you miss, that 18 chapters before this in Exodus, 18 chapters is God faithfully redeeming his people and pointing the way out for them to come to this beautiful promised land. And when they get out of Egypt, they need a way to live. They need a way to live. And so God gives them these Ten Commandments and say, here's how you can live. You're no longer slaves. Your identity of a slave is gone. And you have this new identity as my people. And I'm going to give you a way to live. So it wasn't like, ah, we have to follow a bunch of more rules, Ten Commandments, far out. It was like, yes, we get a way to live. We get, this is life. This is no longer slavery. This is life. The covenant mediator. If you look up on the screen, have a look. Think about the covenant mediator. Who's the mediator? It's Moses. And God's covenant people, Israel, is who Moses is mediating between. Right? So you've got the covenant people of Israel. Moses becomes the mediator. He's like the go-to man that God speaks to to then go and share with the uh, people of Israel. And, uh, and he's the mediator at this point. The blessings promised in this covenant are redemption from bondage and the freedom to worship God. Is there any similarities yet? What's the gospel message? Redemption. Redemption from being a bond slave to sin and to your own selfish, sinful desires to freedom and life in Christ. The conditions or curses of the covenant. You must obey all of God's laws which God came and gave to Moses in the Ten Commandments. These find their foundation in the worship of God as the only God. God says, I'm being kind to you. I want to love you. And for that to happen, for my kindness to be outworked, you're going to obey my commands. And that's going to mean life for you. It's going to mean life for you. The sign by which the covenant will be celebrated and remembered, well, internally, it was the faith of Moses and God's people that they would trust God to rescue them. Externally, it was the celebration of the Passover. This was the remembrance that... uh, Who's been watching the Bible series? Anybody been watching it? A few people? Yeah? Uh, Well, you need to have your Bible open next to it and be reading as you go because it's fairly limited in the facts that it gives. It misses bunches of really, really important things. But they've done what they can with the time they had, obviously. But here it depicted the, uh, the Pharaoh and going down to his son and here's his son laying dead uh, in his bed because Pharaoh didn't want to listen to God. And so this is God saying, I love you, you're my people. Come and obey me, put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the angel of death is going to pass over your house. So that's what's going on. And so this is God's way of saying, remember this. Remember where you've come from. Remember how my covenant faithful love to you uh, remained and how I brought you out of Egypt. Keep celebrating this year after year. You should celebrate this Passover. Celebrate. Have a big feast. Have a great party in remembrance of God's faithfulness and his covenant with you. Fifthly, the form that God's family takes as a result of the covenant is they have a new identity as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Imagine, I was talking about the laws before. Imagine uh, a person who's addicted to drugs or imagine uh, an addiction of any kind. That person becomes enslaved. So the Bible uses the word, not addiction, but the Bible uses the word enslaved. They become enslaved to their passions and their desires for this drug, um, for this pornography, for this uh, money, for whatever. They get addicted to whatever it is that's not God. Okay? And so they become a slave to this. When they go to rehabilitation, what they're actually saying is, I want a new way to live. We're de- I'm desperate for a new way to live. Can you show me a new way to live? 
And so the laws were a bit like that. These people had been enslaved to Pharaoh and God gave them these laws and said, here's a new way to live. And this is life-giving. Only a fool would go to a rehab centre and deal with their issues and not listen to anyone say, here's a new way to live, right? They They wouldn't become... They, they wouldn't get off their addiction. They wouldn't get off their slavery. They'd continue on in it, which tends to happen. I've got a mate who works at Teen Challenge, and uh, Wes has probably seen it plenty of times. Guys come in, they think, yeah, I'm doing really well. They go back out and continue living the same life. That wasn't, how, that wasn't what was intended, right? The rehabilitation is to say, here's a new way to live, and there's got to be laws in there. There's got to be rules for you to say, I've got to stop doing this. I need to cut off these people. I need to move to a different city, I need to actually make big changes so that I can live. This is for life. And this is the same, same uh, tone that's going on here. So move now from the old covenant. So you've got the covenant with Moses, God will be faithful. And, uh, and you know, even, even while Moses is up on Sinai getting these laws, the Ten Commandments for the people to live by, even while they're up on the, uh, on the mountain, Moses is up on the mountain. Here's the people down the bottom going, no, is God faithful? We don't know if he's faithful. Come on, we better set up another, another uh, thing to worship, another God to worship. So they set up this cow, golden cow, golden calf that they can actually bow down and worship. And so you, you get Israel. I mean, we, we probably get that. <laughs> is God faithful? Oh, I better grab something, grab a hold of something to, to worship, something to give me comfort, something to give me protection instead of God. Uh, and so you see, even the people of Israel messed it up, right? Even the people of Israel messed it up, but God remained faithful in his covenant to them. So you move on then to the new covenant, because in Hebrews, what it's talked about is the old covenant uh, being fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus ushering in this new covenant, this brand new covenant. So think about the new covenant. The new covenant that we've already been talking about through Hebrews. The covenant mediator is Jesus. And Jesus acts on behalf of all people everywhere. So it's no longer just the people of Israel. Jesus opens up the floodgates and says, all people are welcome into this new covenant. This is God saying, I'm opening it up. Come in, welcome. Anybody is welcome. There is conditions, but anybody is welcome. The blessings promised in the covenant are innumerable. Some of them, the salvation from slavery to sin and death, a new heart that loves God, eternal life with God in heaven, the Holy Spirit as a gift giving us power to live this new life according to God's standards and continuing the transformation into God's image. What are the conditions or curses of the covenant? Well, it's repentance. The, the way you enter into covenant with God is through repentance, through Jesus, as you put your trust in him to say, Jesus, I've sinned, I've completely oppose you i'm your enemy but i want to put my trust in jesus he's done the work who's made the sacrifice once for all so that i can come back into relationship with you as god <clears throat> so it's faith and trust in jesus for eternal life without this there will be eternal torment in hell that's the conditions you enter into covenant relationship with god or you don't and you end up with eternal torment in hell they're the, they're the, that's the condition. The sign by which the covenant will be celebrated and remembered. Well, internally, the sign is a new heart filled with the Holy Spirit and bearing fruit. That's, that's the internal sign that this new covenant has taken place in a person's life. You can see that they're different. They're changed. They have new desires, new, uh, new ways to live, and they're bearing fruit that comes in line with, uh, with what the Holy Spirit does in people. Externally, these signs are baptism and communion. This is why we take communion. wonder if you've ever thought about the covenant that God has entered into with us as people when we take communion. God, you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. You made the way by sending your son, Jesus. It was no longer a man. It was no longer a Moses or an Abraham or a Noah who could, couldn't ever make the perfect sacrifice. That's why they had to keep coming back time after time after time after time to make sacrifices of animals so that people could be free from their sin. Uh, God came and made the perfect sacrifice once for all that opened up the way for, uh, for people to be in relationship with him. The form and that God's family takes as a result of the covenant 
is that you're invited into a new family who are in covenant relationship with one another, committed to loving God and loving our neighbor. So all the laws that God has set up in the Ten Commandments, they were laws for, for life, right? Jesus came and he fulfilled all the law. Didn't mean that all the law was completely banished, right? We, we don't throw away the law, but what we do do is say, Jesus, you've come to fulfill the law, and here's what Jesus summed up the law as. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor. And that pretty well covers every other law, right? Because when you're doing those things, uh, you're obeying, you're being obedient to, uh, to all the other laws. We're getting close to the end now. Uh, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is look at how the old covenant is, how the old covenant wasn't enough, basically, and how the new covenant is enough uh, for us. And why, why we ought to be thankful and why we ought to be uh, continuing and pursuing uh, the new covenant. Two reasons that the old covenant was not enough. One reason is that it was imperfect. This doesn't mean that the moral law, the commandments were thrown out and abolished. These are still necessary for our obedience and response before God's standards. It does mean that the old Judaistic laws about sacrifices were now superseded by Christ. The Jews at the time were scattered everywhere as a result of the Romans. So the Jews uh, that, that uh, the Bible, surrounding the, uh, the setting of the Bible, in the context of the Bible, were scattered everywhere as a result of Romans who destroyed the temple and treated Jews increasingly harshly. So they were maintaining as much of what, of what we would call religion as possible. They wanted to keep up their sacrificial system. And you could understand why. These people have been persecuted. They've been completely dispersed um, across the land in that time. And, uh, and they're holding on to whatever history they've got because they don't, they're not fully aware of this new, new thinking. They're not fully aware of this new covenant. So they maintained as much of it as possible. They, they were devastated when this temple was destroyed. And what's Jesus come to usher in? He comes to usher in a new temple and we become the temple that God dwells within. So we don't need to actually go into a building. This church houses us, but it houses uh, where God dwells, which is his people, right? So we don't hail a building as being incredibly important or as important uh, as history would have, would have had. God did set up the temple in the Old Testament because that's where his presence dwelt. They wanted to keep the idea of the Ark of the Covenant because that was a precious, precious thing, an expression of God saying, I'm with you. That's why they carried the Ark of the Covenant. Everywhere they went, God's people carried the Ark of the Covenant because that was God's presence with them. Can you imagine when the Ark of the Covenant was no longer as important and, uh, and the people are going, God, have you left us? Like, is, is he gone? The presence of God is, is left us. And God's saying, no, this is a, this is a new covenant. Uh, they wanted to continue sacrificing and making sacrifices so that, uh, that the, uh, the judgment of God would be appeased and, uh, and so that they would deal with their sin. And Jesus comes in ushering a whole new covenant. He says, no, 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 no. I've made the sacrifice. It's done. It's once, it's for all, and it's finished. You don't need to keep making sacrifices. This was good news for these people. Jesus was coming to do something in their hearts so they no longer had to rely on all these external symbols, but on Christ and his internal work in their hearts. The law will not be concerned just with external features, but it will be written on their hearts. That's what Hebrews 8 says, doesn't it? I will write their, the laws on their hearts. So it went completely external, and what only the old covenants could do as doing an external work, right? You had to slaughter animals. You had to uh, go and, uh, and do all the things that were necessary in the temple, to make sacrifices and to come before God and have uh, your sin cleared. And God was saying, I'm taking all the external and I'm moving it to the internal. God wants people's hearts. That's what he wants people's hearts, uh, to be engaged with him. The old covenant is the second reason. The old covenant was powerless. A better covenant was necessary because the old covenant could only point the way forward. It could not provide man with the power to meet its requirements. They did not continue in my covenant. 
The old covenant was to give way to something far superior and the old law was but a signpost to direct man. The new covenant supplies the power to make the journey. Here is the good news. When you enter into covenant with God on his terms, it's good news because he actually gives you this powerful gift called the Holy Spirit. This is God himself dwelling in every single believer and God himself giving power for every single believer to live according to God's standard. So when you get to the point where you are just tired, it's like Pete's talked about running on the treadmill and you are just tired from keeping up and trying to do everything right and doing all that you can to keep God happy and be holy inside of God. Well, God's sort of saying, get off the treadmill and trust my Holy Spirit instead. The new covenant brings about the power dwelling within you to actually live the way God wants you to live. So it's no longer dependent upon, the, uh, upon your own good work. The Mosaic law and works were not permanent. The idea that the new covenant is not really a new covenant, but is, instead is just a renewed covenant, uh, is, is an interesting idea. Recently I went to uh, Elvis. Did anybody, the Elvis impersonator? My father-in-law is just crazy about Elvis. He's got Elvis uh, sitting... Uh, he's got a big picture of Elvis uh, at, in his house. It, he was just crazy about it. Every su- Sunday, Saturday morning, they'd wake up and Saturday morning confusion would be blaring out of the stereo in my wife's home. And, uh, and he'd be cleaning the house, yelling and screaming Elvis. He, he just loved it. Anyway, so for his birthday, he wanted us to go to the Elvis concert, which I was like, all right, it's your birthday, I love you, and I'm keen to go to the Elvis concert. And so I did that, and the crazy thing was, I just, I was chuckling most of the time. He, he did a pretty good job, and he's got some uh, pretty big accolades. Apparently he's got the, uh, is it Graceville? Is that the, Graceland, there you go. Is that the city? No, what, me, what's the city where he lived? Memphis, right. And, uh, and the mayor of Memphis, this is how much I know about Elvis, right? The mayor of Memphis gave this guy the key to the city, because he did such an incredible job of impersonating Elvis, right? And, uh, and I sat there, and the weird thing was, these middle-aged to elderly women were just going nuts about this impersonator. Literally, he'd come down, and he'd walking through the crowd, and he's like, hey, sweetie, and he's got these old ladies kissing his cheek. Then he's got some old lady grabbing a sweat rag and wiping his sweat off his face, you know. Oh, it was filthy. It was disgusting. I couldn't believe these people were so infatuated with this impersonator. And uh, I'm sorry if you're an Elvis fan. I'm just <laughs> and, uh, and they're getting his sweat rags and it's like, this is worth nothing, people. He's an impersonator. <laughs> you're missing it. <laughs> Maybe someone needed to burst their bubble or something. But the big idea is that all the, all the old covenants were impersonators, right? They, they, weren't, they weren't the real deal. What they were pointing to was the real deal. And that was Jesus Christ, the real deal. The whole thing through Hebrews has been Jesus is the greater, Jesus is better, Jesus fulfills all, and he's the real deal, right? He's authentic. And this is the big idea. Jesus wants us to know that this new covenant puts away, puts away the old covenant and ushers in a brand new way to live. The law not only made all subject to it, liable to be condemned for the guilt of sin, but also was unable to remove that guilt and clear the conscience from the sense and terror of it. Whereas, by the blood of Jesus Christ, a full remission of sins was provided. When you sin and when you acknowledge your sinful, uh, inherent sinful nature, you don't depend upon your goodness to come to God. This is the central idea of the new covenant, one of the central ideas of the new covenant. Previously, you had to, to work and obey and do all the right things to, uh, to come before God, right? Jesus is saying, I'm coming, I'm bringing a brand new thing. And this is something to be excited about, all right? You don't want to be hopping around churches looking for a brand new building or a brand new program or a brand new music. You want to be coming and seeing the incredibleness of Jesus, and centering on that. So Jesus brings in this brand new thing where people, people's guilt, people's conscience could not be appeased with an animal sacrifice. 
Jesus Christ sheds his blood so that our consciences could be cleared, so that the guilt of our sin could be removed, and so the wages of our sin, which is death, could be completely dealt with. So it did not depend upon the good works. No person sitting here enters into a covenant with God based on how good they are. No person sitting here. The only way that you come into covenant relationship with God is by saying, Jesus, you've done the work. It was finished on the cross. There are no more sacrifices to be made. There is no good that I can come and offer to make you like me. When I'm in relationship with you, it's because I trust Jesus and I know that God will be faithful to his promise and to his covenant with us. So what does it mean to be in covenant relationship? It's God who makes a covenant with you, not the other way around. This is where dangerously the church has entered into this idea that, Jesus, I want you to come and come into my heart and enter into covenant with me. Almost. Do you see that? It's a dangerous area, I think. It's not Jesus inviting, inviting Jesus into your heart. Instead, it's being saved by Jesus and entering into his family and into his covenant. So you walk onto his turf under his terms. And that's a life-giving thing. <clears throat> God never backs down on his end of the covenant. His people did right throughout history. And so, so God says, I showed no concern with them. When you approach God, do you sense that he's made the covenant with you and not the other way around? Because of Jesus Christ and his work as the mediator on your behalf, you get to approach God and end relationship with him on his terms. If you're approaching God for the first time today, it's your invitation to God on his terms. I invite you in. This is what God says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Salvation is that rest. If you're approaching God, uh, sorry, sometimes we can tend to become like the Jews and hold on to what we thought we knew was the way to relate to God. Maybe you've grown up all your life and uh, the, the whole system of relating to God is like he's a, he's a, a judge. He is the judge, right? But he's a judge and you have to do all these things right for him to like you and uh, to, clear, to clear the debt. Or you have to be so good uh, in order for him to like you. And God, God's removing that. He's saying, I've got a standard and a way for you to live and I'll invite you in. I've made a way for you to do that and that's through Jesus Christ. Not through anything else you could ever, ever do. And so the invitation goes out for you to humbly come. <clears throat> Secondly, marriage is a covenant. Marriage was never meant to be about love. Not completely about love. So the idea that we have uh, currently, and uh, I'm quoting newspapers and uh, people all around, is that two people who love each other should be able to get married, which is where it opens up the door for homosexuality and, uh, and for same-sex marriage. And that wasn't the idea. It was never the idea. God instituted marriage from the very, very beginning. What did God do with Eve? As a father, he brought her to Adam. And at that moment, they were married and they were joined and they were united as one under this covenant called marriage. And so marriage was meant to be a display of God who keeps covenant with his people. Jesus Christ is the husband, is like the husband, and his church is the bride. And so marriage, as men, we're the head of our homes and the head of our marriage, not in a, not in a uh, evil contractual way, right? Like, I, whatever serves my self-interest, you better serve my self-interest, right? And if you don't, I'm out. No, no, no. As the head of a home and as the head of a marriage, a man gets to love his wife and lead her to image what God's love is like to, to his wife. And a wife, just like the church, gets to respect and honour her husband. So this marriage is a covenant. When you enter into marriage, what do you say? Remember the life and death bond of a covenant? What do you say? I'm going to commit to you for the rest of my life until death do us part. That's covenant language. So maybe, maybe there's people sitting here who need to go, oh, I need to reconsider marriage. And the marriage that I'm in, this is a covenant. Am I holding out on my husband? Am I holding out on my wife? Uh, because they haven't been feeding my self-interest. Well, in a marriage, in a covenant, 
Think about God. Has he, ever, has he ever gone back on his covenant? People have rebelled against him. The people have completely sinned against him. They've created other gods. They've worshipped other gods. Um, they've Literally, the Bible talks about like they've whored themselves out. They've become like a whore going around and, uh, and sleeping around. They've whored themselves out to these other gods. But what does God do? He remains faithfully, covenantally loving his people. So in the same way, this covenant between two people... God forgives people, so we get to forgive each other. When I sin against you, when you sin against me, we're in a covenant. This is until death. Death is the only thing that will separate us. The Bible does, I'll say at this point, the Bible does give some grounds for divorce. But that will be, that will be a very, very, very last resort uh, in relationship to this covenant of marriage. So marriage is a covenant. And Christians who approach marriage as a covenantal union until death. So I wonder if that changes the way you think about dating and the way uh, Diff talked about dating a few weeks ago. I would say very clearly changes the way, the way we think about dating uh, and as Christians entering into a marriage. This is a big deal. You imagine blood, blood shed. If we were back in Old Testament times, blood would be shed. If I made a covenant... Uh, with somebody else and I broke my covenant. I violated that covenant. Blood would be shed. This is serious. This is weighty. Not something to be feared, but something to be entered into with great depth of thought. Parenting. My wife and I are having a conversation about this just this morning. Not really thinking about parenting as being a covenant relationship. Parents being in covenant relationship with their children. So at no point... Could their child do something wrong and they go, stuff it, I'm done. We're out, this is finished. So a child no longer has to say, please like me, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, I'm good, I'm doing the right thing. That doesn't seem to be God's covenantal relationship. God's covenantal relationship is an unconditional love that loves whether we do the right thing or whether we don't do the right thing. Now, it doesn't mean we have no responsibility and go, all right, God loves me covenantally, I'm, I can do whatever I want because <laughs> he loves me anyway. No, there's still responsibility in there and, and children still should take responsibility for sin, but the love, the covenantal love of a parent to their child should never change. So in a conversation with your child and you ask the question, is there anything you could do that would make me stop loving you? A child should be able to confidently say, no way. You will love me until you die. There is nothing I could do to make you walk out on me. And there's, whoa. Can you, can you imagine families like this? Covenant families with love that is ingrained and so deep within that, those relationships. So maybe it changes the way you parent. Church membership. We haven't got church membership, but uh, we've had conversations about it before. And this isn't a uh, plug that we're about to start church membership, right? But I wonder if church membership is something to be feared right now because people think contractually. I want out. If you don't give me what I want, I'm out. I want to go to another church. And so people who enter into a covenant relationship don't have contractual thinking, they have covenant thinking. I am yours and you are mine. And not in a weird cultish way. Don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> We're not going to become a cult. But the attitude of covenant relationship with brothers and sisters, right? Because when God invites you into his covenant, he invites you into a family. And the language of family gets used through and through throughout the New Testament. Paul often uses the language of family. And so I'm in covenant relationship with you to love you, to serve you, and to look out for your best interests. And each of you, when you enter into covenant relationship with God, enter into a covenant relationship with a family that you get to love and serve and pursue and, and, uh, and look out for their best interests. So it's no longer contractual. You better come to me and give me what I want. <laughs> you better serve my self-interest. We've got to get away from that thinking. And I guarantee community will transform our community groups will be transformed when we start to think covenant. We're in covenant relationship with one another because of a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to us and we get to go and be faithful to one another. 
So maybe it's something we can think about in the future. I don't know. God is faithful even to a faithless, stiff-necked people who sin against him. Our response is repentance of sin and trust in Jesus. I wonder if you could uh, turn to me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It's up on the screen as well. This sums up, uh, to some extent, what, the, uh, what this new covenant is all about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace... Pause and think. By grace, not of your own doing... Noah was not a good man that God showed favour to because he was good. Noah was a man who had sin, inherent sin, the same as every other human who God showed kindness and favour to. Yes, he did produce uh, righteousness, but not because of his own doing. God showed favour to him because God's kind. God was gracious. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. This new covenant is a gift from God to you. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So we have a covenant keeping God. You might be weary right now of trying to keep covenant with God. You might be weary right now of trying to hold up this relationship with God so that, uh, so that he will like you. You might be weary right now um, of... Whatever. What I would say to you today is that God is a covenant, faithful, keeping God. He will remain faithful to you. You've been chosen to be his. You're one of his. You're in his family. And like a parent who doesn't desert their child because they've stuffed up, like a parent who does that, God is faithfully pursuing you. And so I want to encourage you today. I hope that uh, what I've talked about this morning will open your eyes to who God is and the covenant that he's established throughout history, but also that it will be encouragement to you. God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. His covenant with you will remain forever. And your job is to quickly repent. (laughs) Your job is to quickly come back to him, find rest in him. There's no peace for you in being good. Not first. The goodness comes as a result of the Holy Spirit in you, right? There's no peace with God in being good. The only peace with God this morning is by coming humbly with a broken and contrite heart, saying, I acknowledge my sin and how much do I need you as a God who is faithful, as a God who loves covenantally. Let's pray. God, we've got a good couple of thousand years of history that we can read throughout the Bible and, uh, and just be mind-blown of your covenant-keeping faithfulness to, towards your people. And God, this new covenant that, uh, that you ushered in in Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm blown away, God, that you would pursue a people who are inherently sinful, filthy with sin, but transform that into something new that there would be eternal life as a prize, as, as something to attain towards, eternal life with you. God, thank you that you made a way possible through Jesus Christ, that we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to go through uh, an earthly priest, a human priest. They could never do the job. They were all pointing to you, Jesus. But we can come to you confidently and boldly, Jesus Christ under this new covenant that you've made with us on your terms and what joy there is in surrendering to you on your terms. You have a track record, a a perfect track record of faithfulness. You have a perfect track record of judging justly. You have a perfect track record of following through on your promises because that's who you are, God. Your Lord, your God. So I pray, Lord God, that uh, there would be a spirit of encouragement this morning uh, for those believers who are, who are in covenant with you, that, God, you, you are remaining faithful, that you, 
call them your own and, uh, and they can have confidence in that. And they would quickly come and repent. They wouldn't do the work of making their own sacrifices uh, to try and come back to you. They wouldn't beat themselves up with self-condemnation. But instead they would trust wholly and solely in the work that Jesus has already done and the sacrifice that he's already made so that we can come back to you. Moment by moment, day by day. Thank you, Lord God. You're amazing. Amen. Amen.